You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, if you start him up, he'll never stop. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. I am the Energizer Bunny of people. You'll make a dead man what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, if you start me up, I will never stop. on the radio. <laughs> Did you ever see the video of the Boston Dynamics robot doing the dance from the... That mimics Absolutely the video for hilarious. that, right? It was yeah. funny, right? I didn't realize how utterly goofy that video is until I was watching this stupid robot dance next to Mick Jagger, and I was like, who choreographed this? What, did they do this in 15 <laughs> minutes? Like, come on, it's the Rolling Stones, holy mackerel. Oh, yeah, all the music videos back then, they were like, all right, we got a room for 20 minutes, just go do something. Well, like, same record, right? They released that, yeah. I think they released that song first. And then the next single was Waiting on a Friend. It wasn't any more dynamic. It was them sitting on a stoop in New York, all kind of dressed in polyester, singing along to the song. But compared to And then they end up at a bar. Right. Right, But then compared to Start Me Up, that was like a mini movie. I felt like I was watching The Lord of the Rings compared to Start Me Up. (laughs) And then the next video... The next video was Hang Fire, arguably my favorite song on that album. Yeah, good, good, And it was good shot track. very obviously, very obviously the same day as Start Me Up. Yeah. <laughs> what was the one where they were all dressed as sailors? That wasn't from uh, uh, Tattoo You. That was an earlier one. Well, I don't know. I They're all dressed as sailors? Yeah, they're all dressed as sailors and they're getting uh, I think you're sprayed down with in the Navy by the village people. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it's not that. But anyway, early videos and classic rock acts not a mix that you definitely want to spend a lot of time researching because it'll really make you feel bad about life it honestly took a little while before the real like people kind of like got the hint that there's a a visual component to making you know a visual medium i think it was like when russell mulcahy i think that's who the director was when he started doing like the duran duran videos like hungry like the wolf and rio and all that when people like oh we're gonna have to step up our game step up their game they did <laughs> and the rolling stones did no more videos after those <laughs> so their game was like see you later <laughs> yep you good luck with those things let's say hungry like the wolf would have been like 82 and yeah. 85 is whenever dire straits came out with brothers in arms right and they had the video for money for nothing right. You know, with all the cutting-edge computer graphics at the time. (laughs) I don't know if you remember this, but there was a Rolling Stones video with computer graphics. They were like, oh, that's how you make a single. I Well, we're going to have to do something like that then. And then they put out a video, like like I said, it had computer graphics in it. But it also wasn't a great song. (laughs) You know? Well, I would would, need both. I would argue that the video that they put out with that was computer graphics... uh, no actual Rolling Stones appeared in the video. So that was... No, no. That was like, they gave a, hey, you kids are good with computers, right? Here, check out this track. 
what can you do with this? And that's what you ended up with. All right, so like I just did a quick you know YouTube search and Google search to try to find out what song that was, and honestly, I can't find anything. That's how like obscure it was and how bad it flopped. But I remember <laughs> there being computer graphic video kind of to rival Money for Nothing. Yeah, I can't find it. I did find the Harlem Shuffle, which was like regular, um, almost looked like Ren and Stimpy. Uh, I think uh, that's the same. I don't, Is that the same man? I don't, I don't think John Crickfalusi did the the Harlem Shuffle video, but I will say the same is that no Rolling yeah. Stones appear in the Harlem Shuffle video no. in real life. And I'm sure by then they were like, yeah, we're not really interested in doing these. Charlie Watts is going to beat us with his drumsticks if we suggest that we even do them. <laughs> and that's why that's why Mick Jagger had to sneak away to do that terrible video with David Bowie for Dancing in the Streets. And that other terrible one with Bette Midler, lest we forget. <sighs> Remember they covered Beasts of Burden? Yep. Yeah. That used to be a Rolling Stones song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, old music videos. I like I like talking about them because they make me happy. Yeah. You know, I live for a day where people in Generation X can shut up about the fact that MTV doesn't show music videos anymore. It's like, you know, you're going to kind of have to get over it. Yeah, and with platforms like YouTube, I mean, there are still tons of bands, bands that my kids listen to, bands that I listen to that still build video components and put them out through Vivo or directly to YouTube so that they're still out there. You just have to go find them. You just aren't plunked on the couch like we of the spud potato variety of the 1980s. Like, oh, I wonder what video is going to be on next. Maybe I'll get lucky. It'll be that slam bang money for nothing. (laughs) That's my old person voice. (laughs) But it's, you know, now I can just go like, oh, yeah, money for nothing. I remember those video and, and hunt it down. And there it is. Right. That's the thing, too. Like, I don't know about you. I don't have time to sit on the couch and wait for the next video to come up. No. And I, no. I like... Give me YouTube. Yeah, go to YouTube. All right. Before we get the show proper started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. You're going to know this part of the question. What is a 20-sided dice called? There's no second part of that? You're not going to roll for initiative to give me a, There's like no second half? Because the way you, you started that was... There's a second half of the question. I just don't remember what that thing is called. Do you know what it's called? Oh, I, I, is that the trivia question or is that a question no, question? It, no, it isn't. No, that's just oh. part of it. What is it? <laughs> I have no idea what a 20-sided dice is called. Sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, that's like a dodecahedron. Yeah, no, I, you've got me lost there. Yeah, I'd have to ask Ian. All right. uh, and he's a Dungeons okay. Dragon. Anyway. Uh, for the Dungeons and Dragons people out there, the twenty-sided dice. If you were to crack open a magic eight ball, the shape inside with all the yes, nos, and maybes is a twenty-sided dice inside. What is the ratio between yes, no, and ambiguous? I feel like this is not a trivia question. I would like to throw yes, the flag is. down in protest of this. This is a math question, Bill. As soon as you it's say not a, ratio, math question. a math question. All right, fine. How many yeses, how many noes, and how many ambiguouses? Okay. I still feel like I'm being forced to count. Yeah, at the end of the show, we'll suss this all out. Oh, I'm being forced to count. So you can't count up to 21 without taking your pants off. I can't. All right. Look, I look now you know my secret. <laughs> all right, but this is the week beginning, October the 10th, and it is your turn to start. October the 10th, 1969. British prog rock band King Crimson released their debut album in the court of the Crimson King. Have you ever listened to that record? I chose that album as part of my album a day challenge. I'm going to say about a year ago. I don't even remember what the category was and I had never listened to it. And being a prog rock nerd and running in prog rock circles, 
that's one of those albums that I felt like I needed to listen to and I never have. And I did, and I haven't listened to it since. It did not grab me. I listened to that record for the first time about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, Maybe a little bit more than that, but not much more. Was I over your house? Nope. (laughs) Nope, you weren't. It was brought to my attention by, by my son. Now, I'd heard the name... And I also travel some in prog rock circles, and I like classic rock too. But yep. King Crimson does not get airplay, so I don't, no. don't really hear them. And we were driving someplace, and, and it was on, and I was like, what is this? And he said, ah, oh, it's King Crimson. It's like, King Crimson what? And he said, the Court of the Crimson King. I said, okay. And it was the song 21st Century Schizoid Man, which I had never heard in my entire life. And I said, I have to get this now, like right now, like we have to go someplace to buy this now. <laughs> and I ended up buying it that day. And I, oh, bought, I bought it in two formats. I bought it in digital download format for iPod and I bought the vinyl and had the vinyl shipped to me. And I listened to it like nonstop for a month or a month and a half. I couldn't oh, believe okay. I had never heard it before. It was so weird and so... It's thick. It's a very thick, thick yeah. record. Yeah, that's... A weird word to use to describe music, but if you're familiar with the album or if you've listened to it even once and you say, yeah, that music's thick, you're like, that's a great word. Yeah, it's very thick sounding. There's there's a couple of records that I've listened to in my life where the experience of listening to them feels like it should be you lay on the floor in front of the stereo with your head pointed towards the stereo and your eyes looking up at the ceiling and it's very like dark and the music just sort of washes over you. This is one of those records, especially the title track, which is two-thirds of the second side of the album, uh, right. it just feels like it washes over you. Just talking about it, I've got goosebumps. Like It's a, such a good record. Uh, King Crimson is one of those bands that they inspired a lot of the bands that I like. Yes. It's kind of like I like omelets, but I don't like eggs, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But King Crimson later on, John Wheaton, I believe his name is, uh, the singer and bass player for Asia, mm-hmm. He was in King Crimson for a bit. Adrian Ballou, yep. he was in King Crimson for a bit too. And I've been listening to like his stuff. So I like a lot of the King Crimson byproducts, but that album, like I said, it didn't bite me. And guess what? I'm probably going to go back and listen to it and give it a second chance. I now. think there's only one person that's been in King Crimson all the way through uh, its inception, and that's Robert Fripp. Uh-huh. And I think it's because Robert Fripp is really difficult to work with and spend time with and be around. There's some documentary that I've seen the trailer for, but I haven't seen yet, where basically it's like 18 people on Robert Fripp. (laughs) And Robert Fripp says they're all jerks. I don't know something. It's about the history of the band. I don't know if that's the truth, but that's what the trailer makes it seem like. All right. Moving on to the 11th, October the 11th, 1983, U.S. First Lady Nancy Reagan officially introduces her anti-drug philosophy. Just say no. And how well did that work out? Um... Not well, apparently. <laughs> just say not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Just say no. And meanwhile, the country was going through really, really escalating drug problems. Yeah. And the idea that you would approach the issue on that individual level as social policy, which we still do today with a lot of stuff, seems yep. so weird and antiquated now when you look at it and you can see the, the results of that policy not being good for, right. for anyone. But it shows the power of mass media because that catchphrase that just say no that yep. traveled everywhere not just in 83 you still hear it now you still hear it now yeah yeah you still hear it now well you know people still joke about it about almost 40 years later and you'll hear people that weren't even alive when it happened yeah. you know making reference to it 
Yeah, it all got started in uh, like a year earlier. Whenever Nancy Reagan was visiting an elementary school in California, a little girl had asked her, what does she do if somebody offers her drugs? And Nancy Reagan, off the cuff, said, just say no. Yeah. and Because that happens all the time, like especially to first and second graders. Somebody goes like, hey, Susie, I see your color, and that's, some, that's really pretty rainbow you're making there. And you're like, you want to smoke a fatty? <laughs> <laughs> Just think of all the colors you could see if you take acid. <laughs> Remember they used to they used to send home those terrifying mimeograph sheets to your parents like don't let your children eat the stamps with Mickey Mouse on them. Yeah, the lick them, stick them tattoos. That, those yeah. are not real. That's like yeah, start starting the myth that drug dealers love giving away their stash for free to kids, to like little kids yeah. at the school ground. Like that's ridiculous. To, uh, hey, Timmy, you want to come up to the board and do the math problem? Can't teach. I'm tripping my balls off right now. <laughs> All right, moving on to the 12th. October 12th, 1609. 1609. I'm going to say that number again oh. just to make sure I understand it. 1609. That's a long time ago, Bill. The children's. Ah, I was only a kid back then. I was uh, right. I, I, somebody had just offered me some Mickey Mouse stamps. Yep. And I took them and I stuck them on my arm. Anyway, the children's rhyme Three Blind Mice is published in London. 1609. Wow. Right? I can imagine it must have been a sensation for them to publish that. I don't know that it was the first rhyme, but it's a rhyme that has been around since 1609 and was used it as... nearly blew my top hat right off of my hat. I don't, 1609, if you wore a top hat, they would have thought you were a space alien. That was <laughs> two, 300 years before top hats even. Yeah. And... and uh, I can imagine. blew my powdered wig right off of my head. I, you may even be going back further than that. Like, oh, you're almost, you're almost at the end of the Black Death at 1609. It blew the boils right off of my head. <laughs> now we're now we're cooking with gas. It, it's also like the rhyme itself has a tremendous amount of staying power, and I don't know why it does. But I mean, jump ahead 408 years, and three blind mice. That's the first non-religious song that's ever recorded. On any medium, so you get wow, yeah, I got yeah, I got 1901 over here. Yeah, can you imagine? It's like we're gonna record this song that isn't religious and just like women clutching their pearls all over the United States. Right. <gasps> also, Three Blind Mice, yep. as I remember it, was the theme song to the short films that the Three Stooges made. You know, I remember my father pointing out to me. He goes, "Listen to the music. Listen to that. You hear that?" And I was like, "You know, I'm like eight years old." Yeah, he goes, "That's Three Blind Mice." I'm like. Oh, clever. Yeah, 1609. What else you got? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those, It's it shows that, that that sometimes piece of composed music can have that sort of uh, longevity. Greenland shark style uh, long life. Right. I imagine if Edison had a much better singing voice that Mary Had a Little Lamb uh, would have been the first you know, musical recording that wasn't religious. It's, but it's entirely it, possible. It was a spoken word album. <laughs> I can't carry a tune because I'm deaf. I'll just read Mary Had a Little Lamb. All right, moving on to October the 13th. We have one of our weird holidays. October the 13th is International Skeptics Day. I don't believe you. Yeah, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're full of crap. Yep, so I have been a very vocal skeptic for most of my life. Probably have to leave it the Catholic Church if you want to. You know, put a date on it. Just like I always say, I don't believe in anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm an enough. equal opportunity. Yeah, equal opportunity atheist. I uh, I don't even really believe in acupuncture. If we're gonna be honest, I believe in puncture. 
and I believe in accuracy. But when you put them together, yeah. I don't believe they do anything except poke holes in your skin. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that as belief. I, that's like I've seen that. That's a thing. It's a fact. It's not belief yeah. anymore if it's a fact. I had a friend who's not a skeptic. And I was over his house and we were we were talking about either mediums or psychics or something like that. Like um, I think his girlfriend's daughter was like talk was like going to be going to one or something like that. And that is such a rock in my shoe. A, a friend of mine had passed away, you know, in close proximity right. some years ago. And it, like the, the funeral hadn't even happened yet. And I had this like medium person messaging me telling me that she had talked to my friend. I was like, you got to leave me alone on this. Right. You got to leave me alone. So that's like a real rock in my shoe. Yeah. So they're over there talking about it and I'm like harumphing. <laughs> and then my friend was like, well, you don't believe in anything. No, I kind of don't. I, you know, show me some proof and then I'll, I'll believe it. But as far as I'm concerned, any psychic or medium is just doing, you know, mentalism parlor tricks. Right. He goes, I'm a skeptic, but you know, I think there's, there's other stuff out there. And then I'm just like giggling because that is the exact opposite of what skeptic means. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're like, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? You're someone who believes in stuff. You're a believer. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you're looking at the thesaurus, if you're looking at the word skeptic, you're looking at the antonyms for skeptic. Words that are yeah. opposite, not synonyms. You need to look right. at the synonyms. I'm a vegan. And I think tofu is absolutely delicious when cooked in lard. <laughs> my favorite thing about being a vegan is punching ducks while I eat my sprouts. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yeah, whenever I say be a skeptic, I don't fall under that umbrella of do your own research. I just say demand proof. Demand proof. Don't do your own research. You're not a scientist. You're somebody who reads the right. internet. Go find a scientist <laughs> exactly. to explain it to you. Yes. And as we say on National Skeptics Day, Bill, may the spirit of James Randi speak to you in the night. I don't believe in spirits. <laughs> Neither did James Randi. So you'll never hear anything, Bill. <laughs> ah. All right. Hey, speaking of hearing things. What? Uh, what? October the 14th. What do you got? October the 14th, 1947. Chuck Yeager, America's fastest pilot at the time, breaks the sound barrier, traveling 662 miles an hour in... A very dangerous little rocket-powered death plane at 25,000 feet and is the first guy to break the sound barrier. A barrier that scientists believed would destroy the plane and kill the pilot if they broke it. And he did it anyway. He actually did it two weeks earlier. This one that we're talking about here. It's the, the recorded was the one. First time this, well, no, it was the first time the sound barrier was broken at a level. Like he was going straight ahead. Yes. He had actually broken the sound barrier two weeks earlier in a dive. Right. Can you imagine shitting your pants, barreling towards the ground at 662 miles an hour? Like he was heading towards the ground that fast. If he didn't pull up in time, you wouldn't even find anything. It would just be pulverized. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be Adams. What's interesting yeah. is that he went up and did it again. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do this one level. So the plane that he was flying in, the X-1, nicknamed the Glamorous Glennis, for his, he named it for after his wife also. Good move, not going to lie. That's very romantic. If he dies, he you know dies flying something with his wife's name on it. Actually, what happened was he was thinking, if I go faster than the speed of sound, I won't hear her nagging at me constantly. What I was going to say was they had to expand the size of the plane. Did you know that? From the, the one that he flew in the dive to the one that flew at level flight at 40,000 feet. 
because he, he needed a, an entire like whole cockpit extension just to get his balls into the plane. <laughs> Could you imagine like, yeah, Chuck, we're going to need you to do that. I'm already planning to do this again. <laughs> All right, moving on. October the 15th, 2011. Legoland opens in Winter Haven, Florida. You know, I always wanted to take my kids there, but I could never seem to put it together. You're such an asshole. Oh, my God. <laughs> I never went to Legoland myself. I guess that would be interesting. I guess that'd be cool. <laughs> but it's like I'm already down in Florida. There's, I don't know. I don't know if you've been down there before, but there's a lot of other things to do. Are there? Yes, uh, I have been. I have been. What I, what I sort of like about Legoland, Florida, is... As far as I know, it's the only theme park that is specific to a toy brand. Um, it's not like sure. there's Etch-a-Sketch Land or, <laughs> you know, Yahtzee Town or Otheloville. None of those things exist. <laughs> they have all sorts of Lego sculptures in Disney over in, uh, I think it's called Disney Springs now. It used to be called Downtown Disney. Well, they probably make those with those knockoff Legos that you used to sometimes get from your cheap grandmother. I have no experience with that uh, because... Legos were not allowed in this household. Why? Oh, no. Why is that? Your mom had a I've Lego never, phobia? I never had Legos in my life because my my mom said that, you know, we weren't uh, clean kids. We always had messy rooms and stuff like that. And she was convinced that I was going to leave them on the floor. She was going to step on them and hurt her feet. That was her wow. excuse. And I've never owned Legos in my life. Never Good once. heavens. Well, that's a shame because let me tell you something, Bill. As someone who owned Legos as a kid... Leaving him on the floor and watching your dad in a towel going from the bathroom to his bedroom after taking a shower. Step on your Legos and then hop around and swear for five whole minutes is <laughs> one of yeah. the funniest things <laughs> you can ever see. And it was it's one of those instances where, you know, sometimes you're not allowed to have things whenever you're a kid and then you become an adult. And you're like, I could do whatever the hell I want. I'm going to run around my house with a pair of scissors. But that was like something I actually never did. I I never bought myself Legos once I got you know my own place or whatever you would think because my mom had such a strictness against it. Well, it's funny that you describe yeah, it that well, way because I I remember all of those conversations I had when I wasn't allowed to like have those Mickey Mouse stamps that I would bring home from the schoolyard, <laughs> and now I can get them anywhere I want to, and no one can tell me not to. That's that's good to know. You know, you know they, what I do? They still sell Legos, Bill. You don't have to, to die without knowing the joy of clicking little plastic blocks together to make something that vaguely resembles the Batmobile, because that's what I used to do with them. I'm not much of a sculptor. I would just, I would probably end up just making like a castle wall, and I'm like, I'm done. Hey, I made a block. It's like me with Play-Doh. I made a snake. There you go. <laughs> I made a. Let's put this away now. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week. October 16th, 1972, American rock band, and the only band, I think, that had as many hit singles as the Beatles for the time that they were a band, Creedence Clearwater Revival, break up in spectacular fashion. Uh, <laughs> to the point where not only do they still all hate each other, those that are still alive, but they continuously sue one another, so do the record companies, and they're all in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No doubt their pictures are put on different walls, uh, all facing different directions. It's like the guys in Oasis, like, well, that's a bit much, though, isn't it? Yeah. He's your, he's your bloody brother, isn't he? He's no, he's no brother of mine. <laughs> well, in this case, it was two brothers. It was uh, Tom and John Fogarty were the, the foundational yep. members of the band, Stu Cook, and I forget the drummer's name. The drummer's like that. He's like the kid that doesn't know which parent he wants to live with when they break up. <laughs> and he's like, I, but I love you both. And they're like, you got to pick. And he's like, I'm going to go live with my aunt. And that's kind of what happened with him. I'm going to get my own place and buy Legos. Legos. Well, they were making tons of money, and they had a bunch of hit songs, and then Stu Cook was like, 
how come you write all the songs, John? And how come you get all the songwriting credits? And John Fogarty basically said, like, all right, well, you guys can write the songs for the next record. And then, yeah, he was like, you know, you could write songs or we could make money. What do you think? And they wanted to write songs, I guess. I guess. And, And they put out a famously bad album called Mardi Gras. Yeah. It celebrate the fact that it's not good. A bunch of the songs in there are about Stu Cook just complaining about John Fogarty. I'm surprised John Fogarty didn't just brain Stu Cook with his guitar halfway through <laughs> listening to the tapes for the first time. It took two years for the record to come out. It pretty much wiped out their popularity for the, a public that was used to getting a record every six months from CCR. That's yep. how they were able to be so popular. And then that was it. This record stinks. And they were all like middle fingers all around. And then everybody goes their own way. Right. Yeah, I mean, the first album came out in 68, and then they put out, like, three albums in 1969. I I mean, this is like, that's like Kiss. Yeah. Dude, Kiss used to pump out albums fairly quick at the beginning of their career. Yes. It's like Credence Clearwater Revival is the polar opposite of the band Boston. (laughs) Yes, and just as many legal problems, too. I think I think probably part of the reason that they spectacularly exploded the way they did was the, the pace by which they recorded and toured. Because they recorded yep. for like six weeks and then toured for the next five months or four and a half months. Recorded again and toured. And eventually, you spend that much time going from hotel to motel to motel to stage to motel to stage on a bus with like those same four guys. Eventually, after a couple of years, it's like, I'm going to kill all of you. I'm going to murder oh, you yeah. all. <laughs> Dude, I drove cross country with my friend John and my friend Alex. And when we got to Las Vegas, we weren't even done with the trip yet. We still had to go all the way to California. Right. But when we got to Las Vegas, I told them, I was like, look, I am going to explode in a murderous rage if I'm not left by myself for a little bit. I'm going for a walk. And I walked around like Vegas by myself for a couple of hours because, yeah, I mean, just being cooped up like that, I can imagine CCR. Please don't don't take this the wrong way, but I hate you and I hope you die. (laughs) Yeah. No, I didn't wish anything bad on them. I wasn't about to murder them. It's just that I needed to just... You know, not be around the same people, like being cooped up. Nothing against them, honestly. Nothing against them, but just being in that close of proximity for that long. Imagine being forced into that situation, Bill, for like three and a half years, and then it it would be like CCR. You'd be like, you know what? You want to make a record? You go write your own damn songs. And then he writes a bunch of songs about how much he doesn't like you. That's no fun. You write your own damn songs while I walk around (laughs) Las Vegas for a couple of hours, you piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> All right, moving on to the birthdays. October the 10th, 1924, filmmaker Ed Wood. Ed Wood. I watched three or four of his films. I've always had a copy of Plan 9 from Outer Space on VHS. I bought it back when videotapes were expensive still. Um, yeah. And I've had that forever. But I went back with the availability of things on streaming, and I watched Glenn or Glenda and Bride of the uh-huh. Monster. And you know what? I really enjoyed them. They're goofy as all get out, but they're not terrible. Mm-hmm. They're a lot like even cheaperly shitty made B-movies, but they're not terrible. Right. They're moderately coherent. The acting is kind of okay. The sets are all right. But I had a great time watching them. I had never seen Plan 9 from Out of Space. I only knew the legend of it. And during the pandemic, we used to do the virtual movie nights. And one of the films that we picked was Plan 9 from Outer Space. And like I said, I had never seen it. And then when we get to the end of the movie, I was like, that is by far not the worst movie I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. 
it definitely has its problems. You know, there was a it's it's five dollar budget and four dollar <laughs> fifty cent change. Um, I think you might but, you might uh, have over budgeted that film at that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, adjusted for inflation. Yeah. But like, I've seen way worse movies, and like the Ed the Ed Wood films, you know, they have their charm, and you know, famously the documentary biopic or whatever with Johnny Depp. I think that was a lot of people's diving board to find out who who Ed Wood it, was. It definitely made it easier to get Ed Wood stuff into the public consciousness. Was the, the it wasn't a documentary by any stretch of the imagination, but the biopic about him, directed by Tim Burton, a very very well put together film. All right, moving on. October eleventh, nineteen sixty six. TV actor and former nine zero two one zero middle aged heartthrob Luke Perry. Oh wow, yeah. It's hard to describe how famous he was for a while. He was the most famous like man person on television for a couple of years when 90210 was at its peak. I think they had more viewers than all of the other uh, nighttime soap operas, and they drew in a demographic that was that skewed way younger. And he was right. all over everything. Made a couple of really good movies too. I uh, I didn't really watch 90210. I was not in that demographic, as it were. But a few years ago, I went back and I started watching on Netflix the Riverdale series. Which oh, yeah. Is yeah, based on the Archie the, comics. The, yeah, a dark tale version of the Archie comics. Very well cast. And Luke Perry plays Archie's dad. And he was fantastic. And he was one of those uh, people who actually, like, he was a good-looking young man, and he became a very handsome older man. Yeah. And it's a shame that he left us too early. But he did leave us with a legacy because... His son goes by the uh, the name Jungle Boy. He's a professional wrestler in the AEW league who's got really long and really like curly like 300 pounds worth of hair. Like his hair weighs half of what his his, uh, <laughs> his body weight is. If you kind of like put your hands up to the screen and cover his hair and so you could just see his face. He looks exactly like his dad. He looks a whole bunch like his father, yeah. Of everyone from that show, he was the only one really that converted to a limited career in film. He made he had one starring turn that I remember in a really good movie called Eight Seconds, which was a yep. drama about bull riding, which sounds dumb even as I say it now, but it was a really, really good movie. From the how did this get greenlit file, yeah. Well, it's one of those, like, it's a sports movie, right? Yes, but it's also a cowboy movie. You got it. But how do you make those two things work together? Look, it's also a drama. There's a romance in it. There's, a, like, a relationship picture. There's a lot going get on in this Luke movie. Get Perry on the phone! Oh, right. I know exactly who to put in this. Get that 90120 guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not a bad film at all. He also had a great turn doing something more funny when he was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the, the film version. Oh, yeah. All right, moving on to October the 12th, 1875. Noted satanic Satanist, Aleister Crowley. Ah, uh, yes. Namesake of Ozzy Osbourne's track that made my mother unable to purchase for me, Blizzard of Oz. Yeah, Mr. Crowley himself, right. He used to refer to himself as the Antichrist. He was satanic long before there was any heavy metal albums. True. I imagine he would like play his three blind mice wax cylinder backwards or something. <laughs> yes, he'd play it backwards and you'd hear, you know what you'd hear? But he got thunderstruck by ACDC. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. That's exactly what you hear when you play that song backwards. Um, I like Aleister Crowley in that he was one of the first guy to be unabashedly 
completely and utterly full of shit and everybody knew it and yet they still took him <laughs> seriously enough to give him money to do stuff so he was the priest of a couple of different occult organizations which were all the rage in the turn of the century the last century 1900 yep. to 1910 or so like the the temple of set and the ortis or vecti or some other one where you had all these fake sort of oriental mysticism and other foolishness tied into christian theodicies and things it's just cuckoo bananas. To go back and, like, read his stuff now, it's hilarious. Oddly enough, his birthday lands on Skeptics Day. I know. I was just going to go back and look to see if it actually hit on Skeptics Day. What a piece of kismet that would be. It sure is. Uh, that makes me believe in things, Bill. No, wait. This is a sign, Jeff. All right. There's a sign on the highway that says 55, and it really pisses off our next birthday boy. Who is it? October 13th, 1947. Tequila entrepreneur, former Van Halen lead singer, and undriver of under 55. It's Sammy <laughs> Hagar. I like Sammy Hagar fine. I, I really was a, I was a big Sammy Hagar fan before he joined Van Halen. Yeah, I remember whenever Van Hagar happened and all the... Uh, Elitists were like, Sammy Hagar ruined Van Halen. And I'm like, I beg to differ. I think Van Halen ruined Sammy Hagar. I fall I fall into that same category with you. I went back. I again, I, most of my Van Halen listening gets done at the gym because it's always on in the locker room. And I will stand up any David Lee Roth record against any of the Sammy Hagar records just for, for quality. But there's a big but here. Sammy yep. Hagar's pre-Van Halen stuff, his solo stuff, is as good as far as, like, fun, hard rock and roll as any of the early Van Halen records. Myself, personally, I prefer Sammy Hagar solo to Van Halen pre-Hagar. I know it's a bold statement, but I'm making it. Hey, you know what? That's fine. And uh, there's only one way to rock, Jeff. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That's I, I a going. solid song, Bill. That's it a is a solid, solid song. song. It, we all, you no. know, we joke about I can't drive fifty five, but you know what? That's a yep. that song's a banger. That's a, that's as the kids say. Yeah, and your love is driving me crazy. Yeah. Is a banger. Oh, I'm, and, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, and his uh, original of I've done everything for you, yep. with Rick Springfield yep. covered and made famous. But Sammy Hagar's version is freaking amazing well, I, with these pick slides of what makes that song. Yeah. Moving on to October the fourteenth. 1952, probably about 20% of my personality matrix, Harry Anderson, oh. uh, magician, stand-up comic, and then a much distant third actor who played Judge Harry Stone on my favorite sitcom, Night Court. He also sort of played himself on Cheers. Remember that? He also played himself on Night Court. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he played himself as like Harry Anderson, the, the magician who stole drinks on Cheers. Yes. He would yes. trick the other guys, especially Cliff Clavin, uh, into paying for his drinks. Whether it was like, I bet I can drink this shot without moving the hat that's covering the shot like type jokes. Right. Yeah, he was a, uh, the, the con man magician. Con, right? yeah, yeah, con man magician. That's a good description. I always liked his character. I always thought he was really good on Night Court, too. And he also played uh, Richie in the TV version of it. Beep, beep, Richie. <laughs> One of my, oops, didn't get a chance to do that. Things in life that I wanted to do is Harry Anderson in his retirement bought and owned a magic store in New Orleans. Unfortunately, Harry Anderson left us some years ago. I wanted to go down and visit his magic store because he worked there. You would go in and there would be Harry and he would sell you chatter teeth and do magic tricks for you. That must have been awesome. I bet it was. Uh, speaking of beep, beep, go on. October 15th, 1924, American automaker CEO Lee Iacocca is born. 
He's an executive best known, at least kind of for us and folks younger than us, for being the head of Chrysler at the time that the minivan was invented, that the K-Car platform was created, that Chrysler took a $2 billion loan off the United States government uh, so that they could stay competitive against the Japanese at the turn of the 1980s. Previous to that, he was involved in the design of the Ford Pinto, the most exploding yeah. car in the Ford Land lineup. <laughs> so yeah, he worked for Ford, and he had his hand in a few cars, not just the Pinto. He also had his hand in the in the Mustang, and he's like one of those stories that they teach you in like success business school and stuff like that. Because like he got fired from Ford, and he was like, "Oh yeah," and they started up Chrysler, and Chrysler was a, a very successful company under Leon. Yeah, uh, the auto industry, especially the executive class. I guess that's the best description of of that industry is like it's like an Alabama family reunion though it's super duper incestuous so guys like John DeLorean go from GM to DeLorean cars the guy from AMC goes to Chrysler the guy from Chrysler goes to Ford the guy from Ford goes to Chevrolet plus all the designers do the same thing and they they all share amongst themselves whatever you're like that level in that industry, it's like what else? What else are you gonna do? I I got a job of doing a reupholstering furniture, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them did other stuff. Like for example, I think Iacocca's role with the Mustang was the Mustang Two. That was the Pinto-based Mustang that started in like 1973, the least successful of all the Mustangs. The guy that developed the first Mustang, as well as seatbelts, Robert McNamara, he went off to be in Kennedy's administration. That's where he went from being an auto executive. In like 60, 61 or 62. Uh, hey, here's somebody who doesn't know how to do math or negotiate a contract. <laughs> who might that be, Bill? October 16th, 1946, American actress Suzanne Summers, best oh. known for playing Chrissy Snow on Three's Company for a couple of seasons. And then um, some other stuff. I guess. Yeah. She <laughs> she was on a very short-lived... I remember this because I watched like the four episodes that aired. She was on a very, very short-lived sitcom called She's the Sheriff. I don't know why oh, I remember right. that, but I remember that. That wasn't even like a real sitcom. Like That wasn't like a network sitcom. That was like the USA Network were like, we're going to start doing original programming. And they're like, well, I don't know if that's such a great idea. I can't remember if it was on network, but I remember watching it going like, wow, this show's not funny. And then right. it was gone. <laughs> she was on another show called Step by Step that was on for like, I don't know, seven seasons. I don't remember that show at all. You know what I do remember is her hawking the thigh master. I remember that too. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. There was a, a, a real kind of sexy looking apparatus that women could stick between their knees and squeeze together. <laughs> get those, uh, yeah, I, get I those sexy thighs that you want and. You're watching Suzanne Summers, who at one time was you know, like a very well-paid actress. Right. You know, she wanted more money. And, and, and there's an argument to be made because she was like the selling point of the show. And she was making like pennies on the dollar compared to what John Ritter was making. Right. And she wanted more money. And they were like, nope. And they just got somebody else. Uh, she also had a singing career. She actually does have a very, uh, a very good singing voice. I actually have an album called Swing Alive, which was like a live concert uh, uh, that they showed on PBS, but you could buy the CD. And she sang a song on it. Was it called the Thighmaster Shuffle? <laughs> during the 90s, during kind of like the swing revival. I'm sure they were showing that concert a lot during the like, give money now to PBS. You know who else was on there? Freaking Hal Linden, the guy <laughs> who played Barney Miller. Right. 
who also did a voice of one of the characters in Godzilla vs. Mega Godzilla when it aired on NBC Movie Night of the Week in 1976 or something. Like that. Really? Yeah, he did. A, he did one of the voiceovers for that movie, Terror of Mega Godzilla. Uh, I'm sorry, it's 1977. Yeah. He actually played like he, he played like the clarinet, and he was really, really good, which surprised me because I was expecting the worst song ever. All right, Jeff, we talk about. Uh, 1970s being, or 1970s pop, I should say, being a very, very, very weird time for music. I agree. A lot of things that could sneak through into the charts for no apparent reason, like mm. like songs about eating people in a mine shaft. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a lot of really weird uh, subject matter. And like those story songs and stuff like that, like the night the, night the lights went out in Georgia or whatever it was. Yes. The night uh, Chicago died by a band from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dad was a cop on the east side uh, of Chicago. Apparently he had gills because the east side of the Chicago is a lake. And, unless we forget the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was a real toe tapper. Oh, yeah. But in the midst of all of that was a song that came out in 1977 by a guy named Alan O'Day. Alan O'Day. A song called, yeah. Huh. A song called Undercover Angel, which might have been just like a, a cash grab because Charlie's Angels was really popular at that time. Mm. But the song Undercover Angel, Young Jeff, is not about Charlie's Angels. It's not. No, it's about jacking off while you're trying to sleep. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good to know, I guess. It falls right up there with such classics from the era as Afternoon Delight. The 1970s is the same decade, Bill, where... Chuck Berry's My Ding-A-Ling went to number four. That's the 1970s it's, that we're talking about right now. Yep. Yep. People just love jacking off and, and talking about <laughs> Playing it. Playing yeah. with their ding a so, so anyway, here's a clip of Undercover Angel. Yeah, that whole ooh-wee business, yeah, that's that's got to go. Yeah. That's got to go real, real far away. Uh, but yeah, Undercover Angel is uh, about a guy who's lonely. He's looking for that true love of his life and half falls asleep with his junk in his hand. And <laughs> It's like, you know, I used, that song used to be on the radio when I was like a kid. Yeah. And I think nothing of it. Then I go back and I listen to it as an adult and I was like, how did how? Yeah, I want to go wash my hands. Yeah. Uh, where's the soup? I don't know. I, <laughs> this sort of fall, I like the idea that a songwriter who typically sold songs to other people could sometimes sneak something goofy into the charts. Like, right? This admittedly, this song kind of sucks. I don't sing along yeah. with it when I hear it. The rare times I do, I think most DJs are like, eh, "I'll play Afternoon Delight." That's not quite as terrible as this one. <laughs> um, that they could sneak something onto the charts and make a little bit of money, and then they get a little cachet and they can sell other songs that aren't dumb like this one to other people. So this guy sold some stuff to Ellen Reddy and some other bands and stuff. What I sort of like about this song is that it's super duper bubblegummy without being a bubblegum song sung by a dude who looks like a thumb with a beard and mustache. (laughs) And 
yet it's about you know working the crank under the under at night and yeah it's about hitchhiking under the big top giving yourself the old friction burn but all right it reminds me of of stuff like admittedly these songs are better but things like christopher cross and seals and crofts and 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 all of these like soft rock acts that were really sappy because this song is kind of sappy too but if you listen to it it's like subversively stupid christopher cross doesn't have a song called dating miss michigan it's true so uh, your friend of mine over here, Alan O'Day, he was a songwriter and he wrote songs for, like you mentioned before, Helen Reddy. He actually wrote Rock and Roll Heaven for the Righteous Brothers. Yeah. Yep. So he put out like a bunch of albums up to and including, the, you know, where this album is, right. uh, where this song is. Uh, his first album was, was called <laughs> Songs by Alan O'Day. Oh, it's a super one. creative title, title. I would have gone with like Calypso Favorites with Alan O'Day, of which no Calypso yeah. songs appear. I would have called my first album the very best of Alan O'Day. And that's what I would call <laughs> Alan my first album. Hits. Yeah. Yeah. My first album. Bill with one L. The very best of Alan O'Day. <laughs> you know what? I'm willing to throw 500 bucks down into that record. Let's produce this. Yep. Like, let's make this thing work. He was part of this record company. Warner Brothers Records in 77 formed Pacific Records yes. as a label for their songwriters who also performed. Yes. O'Day was the first and only artist to be signed to that label. I'm sure that was there, there was a description. Uh, a description of that process was like they asked the CEO of Warner Brothers, "Hey, uh, they're all squawking about putting their own music out. It's in some of their contracts, man. It's going to be a nightmare, especially if they all start to band together and try and unionize or something. What should we do?" He goes, "We'll create a label just for them." I'm like, great. Who's the first guy we should put out? And he goes alphabetically by first name, Alan O'Day. <laughs> <laughs> And they, they press the first record and they put it on and he goes, cancel the program. We'll risk the lawsuits like Lee Iacocca with the flaming pintos. It'll cost less to bury the dead than it will be to fix the gas tanks. Uh, he puts out this follow-up single called Started Out Dancing, Ended Up Making Love. This guy has a one-track mind. Uh, so anyway, uh, he, that uh, it stalled out at number 73. But later on, like in the early 80s, he meets up with this songwriter, uh, this fellow songwriter, Janice Leibart. They started writing children's songs, which is an interesting turn of trade, saying that he, what he couldn't stop singing about before. But anyway, if you've ever seen Jim Henson's cartoon, Muppet Babies. Oh, yeah. Any song on there was written by uh, Alan O'Day. He wrote over 100 songs for that show. Wow. Yeah. I wonder how many times he had to have the conversation with, with his writing partner. Like, hey, I have an idea for a song. Okay, what is it? Kermit the Frog, right? Laying in bed. No, Alan. And he's no, under stop, the covers, stop. right? No, she's <laughs> down right there. And, uh, yeah, he moved to Nashville. He just kind of, like, was a musical creative consultant. Mm -hmm. That must be a fun job to have. That sounds good. That'll be 500 bucks. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Needs more out of bongos or something. I don't know. That'll be 500 bucks. How about this? Don't go, ooh-wee, 500 bucks. Hey, this sounds like a song about jerking off under the covers. Why don't you not record this one? <laughs> All right. Yeah, that'll be good. And uh, before we wrap up the segment, if you want to laugh, if you want a good laugh, this song has been covered a number of times, at least a half a dozen, in many different languages. And if you can find the Czech version of it... It's, it's a hoot, man. One, not only does it sound hilarious, but... Uh, the music video, I'm going to guess that Paula Abdul didn't choreograph that. Uh -uh. As often is with sort of these solid gold style 
but yeah. very much European TV programs. They, the dancers are they are like mannequins. Like they only have they're articulated like Star Wars action figures. They are not no, fluid. It looks like the, somebody was like trolling the audience. We need right. twelve girls with pants on. <laughs> hey, I've got pants on. No, not you, sir. Sit down. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's 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 really it's compellingly watchable. Even if it's goofy. Yeah, you have to. If you start watching it, you will watch it to the end. All right. So before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Inside of a magic eight ball is a, ready? I found the word, is a icosahedron. That's what a 20-sided dice is called. Wow. A 20-sided dice is a icosahedron. All right. Inside of a magic eight ball is a icosahedron. There are yes answers, there are no answers, and there are ambiguous a- answers. Okay. If you shake up a magic eight ball, what are your chances of getting a yes, no, or ambiguous answer? Uh, like statistical chances? No, like how many yeses, how many noes, how many oh, maybes. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, thank God it's something not as – I'm not good at statistics. Can I use logic and puzzle my way sure. through this with you? Okay, so if I have twenty, hurry. <laughs> yeah, I will go fast. If I have twenty sides and I want people to keep playing with this dumb thing, I can't have it equal in threes because twenty isn't divisible by three, so it'll have to be like some other grouping. You don't want people to get discouraged, so uh, maybe it's like five no answers and like five I don't know yes or no answers and then ten yes answers of various styles. Right. That is exactly right. Oh. There are ten yes answers, five no answers, and five ambiguous answers on a Thank on you, the magic inside ball. of a magic eight ball. All One I'm, in a row. All I'm going to say is this: all signs point to yes. Well, whenever I grab a magic magic eight ball, I always say, "Should I break this thing open and drink all the blue stuff inside?" <laughs> all uh, signs point to yes. All right. Is this the end of the show? My sources say yes. All right. Uh, so we will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, Bye guys. Everybody. A special shout out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called SPAC Group. That's group with two O's and two P's. We're looking for Twibbly. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you can guess where and how many times Bill had to edit out the phrase, well, there you go from Jeff's audio track before publication.